Hey, this is Dave Pryor for Projects at Work. You're about to listen to my interview with Dr. Sally Ann Freudenberg about the new book she's co-authored with Katherine Kirk. The book is called Inclusive Collaboration Experiments, a short book of activities about working with all kinds of minds. And the work that Sally Ann and Catherine are doing in support of the Inclusive Collaboration Campaign is dedicated to the memory of Jean Tabaka. Make sure to check the show notes of the podcast to see links to where you can purchase a copy of the book, where you can see a video of Sal giving her Fish Climbing Trees presentation from Lean Agile Scotland, as well as links and details on some of the other topics we discuss in the podcast. Thanks. Hey, this is Dave Pryor for Projects at Work. And today, or this evening, for some of us, Dr. Sally Ann Freudenberg is joining me to talk about the new book that she's written with Catherine Kirk. It's called The Inclusive Collaboration Experiments. Dr. Sally Ann, thank you for joining me. Um, it's my pleasure, as always. Before we get into this, just a little bit of background. So you are an Agile coach, a certified Scrum trainer. You have a doctorate in, I'm going to try to get it right, the psychology of collaborative software development. And you do a lot of work yeah. with people in software and aut- around autism and awareness for things like that. Do you want to kind of mm-hmm. talk a little bit about where that comes from? Yeah, for sure. So, um so yeah, I've been in the IT world more than 25 years now, and I think uh, I did my research in psychology, and then probably three years ago now, my eldest son got diagnosed with autism, and the more I, so I kind of went on a big mission of finding out as much as I possibly could, and read as many books as I could, went on courses, went to, you know, watched uh, watch talks, went to events. And the more I heard about autism, the more I kind of thought, oh, well, you know, like a lot of this sounds very familiar to me. And I think actually I have a lot of these traits and I see a lot of these traits in the people that I've worked with, some of the most amazing people that I've worked with in IT over the years. Um, and so I put to bed a little bit more and I found quite a compelling body of research on the link between autism and science, technology, engineering, and, and maths, um, and, and just the tech world in general. Um, and then I started to think about, you know, how, how actually if we've got this link between autism and IT, um, maybe we're not providing the best environments or supporting um, autistic folk as well as we maybe could. So um, that, was the start of a, that was the start of a bit of a mission, really, on my part. Okay, and so the last time that we spoke, you um, you were doing sessions about the the actual workspace and stuff, and but the the book that you've written is kind of taking that to another, kind of extending that quite a bit, right? You've got experiments to help people get more accustomed to things and more aware of what's going on, right? Yeah. So the idea with the book is um, we uh, so I, I, the book the book was written with with help, and in fact the whole campaign that we've called Inclusive Collaboration. Um, has been has been written with um, my colleague um, Catherine Kirk, and the idea with the book really was that we didn't want to give people a recipe book to say, do you know what? If you want to be inclusive, step one, do this. Step two, do this. Make your environment look like this. Do these practices or whatever, because it just felt much too much like a one size fits all um, attempt at a solution and. Um, so what we decided to do instead, and we did very quickly, was to come up with a number of experiments, which were things that we'd done or been involved with um, in our in our coaching lives or in workshops with people, um, to help people start thinking about um, inclusive collaboration, start having the conversation um, 
but also without being too prescriptive. So you can experiment with silence. You can experiment with thinking about the different kinds of minds that are in your in your kind of team or your organisation. You can experiment by going out and sitting in your workspace and thinking about your senses and what's happening. So what are you hearing? What are you seeing? How might that be if you were more or less sensitive um, to to sound or touch or sight or whatever it might be? So really really to come from a place that's much more about giving people ideas that they can then go off experiment with, work out what works best for them and their colleagues um, and their team or their organization and go from there rather than us being terribly prescriptive. So this is more, uh, I want to say this and see if I have it right. So this is more about me understanding what might be going on for people who are somewhere on the spectrum. Um, and getting more awareness of that as opposed to necessarily fixing something for them. Right. So not just people on the spectrum, actually. So the idea with the inclusive collaboration, although it originally came from people from like my experience with being and working with and knowing people um, who are autistic so much as, you know, it might just be somebody who's more introverted or somebody who needs to think things through a little bit more in advance rather than rather than be on the spot or um, it might be somebody who um, touch down their keyboard because they need a lot of thing, you know they need a lot of pressure in their fingers to get feedback and and know that they press the keys and you know these the people don't have to be autistic to have these kinds of needs in the in the workplace and in fact when we're problem solving one of the things we know about creative problem solving is we need incubation space we need to be able to move into a different mode just to be able to come up with creative solutions and ideas so that's pretty relevant for everybody i think do you think that people are kind of blurring the lines a little bit between the introvert the idea of being introverted and the idea of being autistic and just being somebody who might be a little bit different than other folks. I mean, it, it, I'm I'm curious because you've got you've developed a much greater awareness of this than most people have, and and I know you're around people that talk about it. And I'm wondering if you feel like people are kind of maybe blurring it a little bit. Mm, so, um, um, to get an autistic diagnosis, there are like three distinct areas that you need to have you know, um, challenges around. So that's pretty well defined. Um, uh, and I think lots of people say, oh, you know, I think everyone's a little bit autistic or I'm, uh, or, or yeah, yeah, I'm a bit autistic. Whereas people with the diagnosis, um, aren't terribly keen on that, to be honest with you, because it, it there's a feeling that it, if you're not actually autistic, you're sort of, might be um, might be taking something away from the idea of autism as a whole. So, yeah. think, you know, you, it might be might be sort of suggesting that it's not so much of a difficulty or that it's not such a real thing um, as it actually is for people. So, um, I think that I think that might be happening because I hear people say, "Oh, everyone's a bit autistic," but I think in terms of the true meaning of what it is to be autistic, I don't think that that that's the case. So yeah. I think, in a way, it's kind of misuse of that term. Yeah, I, I thank you for mentioning that. I feel like it kind of started with introvert. Like I can't even remember the last time somebody said they weren't an introvert. 
but it used to be that was a bad thing that nobody would admit. And now it's like the cool thing to have. And it seems like it's extending into this a little bit. Um, yeah. And I think, too, so obviously Susan Cain's work and her great book and everything on introversion were really good. Um, and she has a test that you can do online to see if you're an introvert or an extrovert. Um, and, you know, like any short multiple choice online test, that's not a diagnosis of anything, really. It's just to give you an indication so I think, again, people people see some of the little traits and think, oh, yeah, I must be an introvert because, you know, I get tired when I'm around people or I give energy away if I'm like we were just talking about before before the interview, you know, like you're at a conference, you can't do back to back sessions. That doesn't make you an introvert. That just makes you human. And yeah. I think. You know, so I think I think there's some confusion about those terms too. Well, so can we talk about the conference? Because you do you mentioned something that had happened at a conference as a result, of, or at least in part as a result of some of your work. That sounded like a really great thing. Oh yeah, so um, I was just at the Go To conference in Berlin, which was which is just such a fabulous conference series anyway. Um, and um, in conjunction with Catherine and I in inclusive collaboration, we sort of developed the idea with them um, and they they uh, decided that they were going to have a quiet room, which was just fabulous. So very, very easy for any event to do. It was just some space with the notes on the door and everybody was, you know, everybody was informed that that, that, that was an entirely silent space. Um, and the, there were blinds, shutters on the windows to just dampen the light a little bit and bean bags. And it was just a really, really nice place that you could go to to recharge um, during the conference, either if you felt a bit bamboozled from all the information that you're trying to take in or if you just kind of needed to get away from folk and have some quiet time or you were kind of done socializing for for a while. Um, and so it was just such a lovely, lovely space. And we had um, the conference had great feedback about it. So I'm hoping that that's um, another thing that um, as a as a campaign will 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 try and build awareness of for events and things in the future. Yeah, I think it's a really important part of self-care, self-protection, too. I mean, a lot of people don't realize how, like, you know, you, you mentioned you might just start to feel kind of worn out. Like, people aren't aren't always aware of the toll that some of that interaction can take. Um, and, and they might need a place to just go, just hide yeah. hide for a little while. I always yeah. think of it as hiding um, because yeah. it, there's just, I have to go be, have a little quiet time in the dark for a while. Um so with the book, you've introduced a bunch of different exercises. Can you talk about um, maybe one or two of them and, and what the what's your favorite one of the exercises in the okay. book? So, so my, abs- my favorite one, and this is just because we ran it at a conference relatively recently, and it was just such, such a wonderful exercise. Pretty much my favorite one is the silence experiment. So this is an experiment, and, and the way it's kind of covered in the first draft of the book, which I think probably is the, the version that you got, is um, that you just choose an, um, an activity to do. Um, it can be building a Lego set from instructions or, or anything really um, in a group of in a group, and you do it entirely in silence right from beginning to end. So there's no discussion even of who's going to have what role, how you're going to work together, um, and what we've done with the science experiment is while you're doing that, you have a, um, 
paper and pen next to you and every time that you feel like you really really want to talk you just write down what it is that you wanted to say not so you can cheat and then show it to the other people in your team but um so that you can use it for reflection afterwards and um the reason at the moment that this is my favorite experiment is that um we just did it at lean agile scotland this year and when I'd done it with Lego, I'd been a little bit aware, like I love Lego, but I was a little bit aware that it's a very different thing making something out of Lego than it is being at work. Because obviously when you're at work, you're very invested in what you're doing. There's a certain amount of stress on you to get it right. And it's a very different kind of thing than just building a model out of some blocks that doesn't isn't really ever going to be used by anybody. So we decided to use a non-trivial activity and... Um, I was absolutely delighted because I've been wanting to do this particular particular activity for probably about four years now, and I just have never been able to think of the right opportunity to do it. So um, four or five years ago, I was on in a, driving a motorhome across Australia with my family, and I heard this guy come on the radio and talk about an activity that he'd created to um, for. To, to help with team building and, and, and stuff like that. And so that's what we use. Um, it's an organization called Helping Hands, and you actually physically make a prosthetic hand um, that will be used by um, landmine victims. So you get the kits, you make them, you um, decorate a, a bag for, it to, for, the kit, for the finished hand to go into. It then gets sent back to the headquarters, and they distribute them out um, and train people to, to use them as their prosthetic limbs. So sometimes people who haven't been able to write or, or whatever for, for 20 years or something. So that was amazing because it meant that we were doing activity that it was very hard not to feel um, not to feel invested in and not to want it to absolutely be right because you knew it was something that was actually going to go and help somebody. And also it was just a lovely activity to do. So it was a very moving session. Oh, that's cool. That's really great. Um, I mean, a lot of, so that's a great way of helping people externally, but I mean, it's also supporting the team coming together as well, right? If you're doing that within a specific team that you're working with. Yeah. So, so we, Again, it was it was kind of the idea being that sometimes when we've moved to a more agile way of working, we maybe as a community are expecting people to be much more verbose, to be much more thinking on your feet, saying stuff then and there, um, and that actually both Catherine and I have worked with, in organisations where some of the really kind of hyper-extroverted people end up sort of almost, well, just end up being quite a toxic environment where, you know, they're the people whose voices are heard, no matter how much we try and kind of make it an even field, where there might even potentially be a bit of bullying by louder, you know, the kind of louder folk. Um, so what we were trying to look at was how do you, how can you start to use that um, executive functioning, that that bit between your brain and your mouth that goes, hang on a minute, do you really need to say this right now? Um, uh, which which Catherine calls calls urge surfing, um, and uh, and I call it executive functioning. So um, so what we wanted to do was to give people an opportunity to use that and to think about what it meant. So if I can't talk and I'm collaborating together in a in a group, you know how many of the things that I would have said do I really need to say? And I think that's one of the – so at the end when we get people to, to 
post up the things that they've written down as things that they wanted to say. We get them to put them into two kind of stacks, one being here are things that I really thought I wanted to say, but you know what? I really didn't at the end of the day. It worked out fine. I didn't really need to say it. It was almost like a bit of an impulsive, I just needed to make a noise. And then on on another pile, kind of like here's stuff that I really still felt that I needed to say. And what was really fascinating is the stack of stuff that people thought they needed to say, but actually was just fine when they didn't speak was huge, much bigger than the stuff that they still felt they needed to say. And the, the, the things that people afterwards were kind of like, oh, I still feel like it would have been nice if I could do this, were things like congratulating each other when we've done a good job, um, uh, helping somebody. I think one of, one of the – oh, saying sorry. So it was those, those kind of things that people still felt that we weren't going to do. And even when we – dove into those a little bit at the end of the session when we were debriefing and said, okay, so um, tell us a little bit. And people would say, oh, you know, when stuff went wrong, it was really frustrating not to be able to say, I'm sorry I did that wrong um, and and kind of explain why. And so when we said, well, what happened instead, people people kind of said, well, after, after feeling frustrated for a minute or so, I just had to kind of shrug and go, oh, and then carry on. Yeah. And we were like, well, how perfect isn't that exactly what we want teams to be doing? And fail-safe environments to be able to make a mistake and just kind of go, oh, and then, you know, carry on. So uh, it was just fascinating, just such such a brilliant session. And so the other things that in the debrief that we, that we kind of said, like, generally, tell us how it was being silent. People were like, it was amazing. We were in flow much more easily. We worked together really easily. We didn't need to kind of discuss what our roles were going to be. It was very fluid. They also said there was no hierarchy. They felt like they were much more of a team altogether because nobody was able to impose themselves uh, or their views or the way that they wanted to do stuff on anybody else. And and we didn't know how it was going to go. So Catherine and I talked about the possibility beforehand that people who would be um, overbearing verbally, you know, it's completely possible that they could be just gesticulating crazily and still be kind of bossy, yeah. Silent, but they didn't. And actually, one team that I did the science experiment with with Lego, um, uh, they ran out of time, and they said, "Can we carry on building the Lego in the break?" So I said, "Of course, can. We'll just put it over to one side." You know, no more playing. Like, Back to work now. No more yeah, fun. Yeah, yeah. So I said, no, no, that's fine. You can you can do it in the break you want to. So, so um. They carried on the break, but 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 talking, and then they came back up to us, and I was like, "Oh, this is a brilliant opportunity to ask them what was different." So, what was different when it was silent than when you were talking? And they pretty much all said we preferred it when we didn't talk. We wow. got on better. We worked together better. They said as soon as we talked, like because these were people, this was like an internal session. So these were people who work on teams together all the time. They said, once we, once we were talking the hierarchies, the roles all came back in the ways we were, you know, all the loaded expectations we had on each other came back in and it was much harder to collaborate when we were talking than it was when we were silent, which was just such a surprise. If they were getting along better when they weren't talking, when they started to talk, was the talk focused on the play or was it focused on something external? No, no, no. It was focused still on what they were doing. Okay. So they didn't suddenly talk about something else. It's just that the, the, that somebody who was in a, a, a position of authority over someone else would go, take this bit, do yeah. this, you know. 
start See. giving them instructions whereas silently you can't do that so yeah. it wasn't that that it didn't so it wasn't that they spoke about different things so much as the way that they interacted on the thing that they were doing that was the thing that they spoke about and that's what changed it's funny when you said there were categories like the things that you were okay with not saying and the things you really still needed to say. I felt like I wanted another one where somebody else come in and go, yeah, that thing that you needed to say, you didn't need to say that. Um, mm-hmm. But that seems a little counterproductive to what you're actually trying to do. But um, Well, I, I, I don't know because still when the things that they said they still needed to say, we poked away at it a little bit and said, okay, so what happened instead – and then did you really, really need to say that? And, oh, okay. and, and we're still coming to the realization that even the stuff that they thought they still needed to say, actually, you know, they didn't always. Yeah. And they found other ways of doing stuff. So even like one of the ones that was, uh, it's really, you know, we really wish that we could congratulate each other when we did a good job. And we said, well, what happened instead? They're like, oh, well, we just did a high five or we just smiled or whatever. And that actually, it was fine. Yeah, so, they knew. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I mean, the only kind of negative thing that that people did say was that it's very weird to, to not know each other's names. And it was very weird because we didn't even, you know, we didn't even give them the time to introduce each other or anything. It was like straight into the silence. And that, that sometimes when then when they spoke, they were like, oh, um, so just surprised by that person's voice or yeah. what their name was or what they did or um, but that was great because Catherine, Catherine's a Buddhist and sometimes she goes and does like a, a month of silence. And she said that you can go a whole month and by somebody's actions, you'll be like, oh, I'm sure that lady's French. And then after the month, you know, yeah. you get you get to walk up a hill and at the top you're like, okay, you can introduce yourselves to each other. And like, lo and behold, the French ladies from, I don't know, London or America or whatever. And not at all, doesn't sound at all like you thought they would. So um, yeah, it's very interesting. That's cool. Can you can you talk a little bit about the uh, rules for neuro inclusivity, really quick? That was one that the charter that that I wanted to ask you about specifically. Yeah. Okay. So the the short rules. So that came from a session actually at the um, Extreme Programming Conference this year that Diana Larson gave. So Diana Larson gave a workshop um, about simple rules for teams. And because she'd just been to my neurodiversity talk, very kindly, she made her whole session about simple rules for neurodiversity and and inclusivity in teams, which was great. So um, the idea there was, um, so Diana's session was about complex adaptive systems and the fact that even uh, complex adaptive systems have simple rules. So if you think of like a murmuration of starlings and they, you know, when they all fly around and it looks like crazy smoke and you think, how can they all stay together? And yet it all looks quite chaotic. That actually there are just, there are just some very, very simple rules that they all use to maintain within the boundaries of that system to, to maintain the way that they work together. So the idea was to, to come up with just some simple rules. So to think about a common situation for your team and then given that situation, think about, you know, simple rules for being more inclusive in that situation. And the ones that came out of the session were just fabulous. And I've done a similar session now a few times um, internally in organizations as well um and and they're, and they're great so things like you know assume positive intent um which which i think i think my kind of thing we 
it, it's not news, it's not a new thing, but there's something about writing it down in a kind of charter of working agreements that we're going to work by that we've agreed to as a team up front that just makes us mindful that it's there. But also I think it gives us the opportunity to, as a team, be responsible together and kind of call each other out a little bit because it's not about, oh, hey, you're doing that thing. It's so much as, well, hey, look, these are the things that this is the way that we said we work together. How can we be more like this? So um, I think, yeah, I think I think it's it's super useful from that point of view just to come up with some just to start thinking about, you know, how we, how are we going to help each other in this yeah. team if, if to be creative if we've got somebody who needs quiet space or somebody who really just needs loads of people around them and interaction or um, somebody who needs to think things through in advance a lot or I don't know. Like I've been on teams with people who really amazingly smart people who pretty much don't say anything at all for most of the day. And, and it would be really easy to think they don't have anything to contribute. And then suddenly they'll just say this one, like, beautifully crafted, amazingly clever, like, getting straight to the solution of the problem sentence, this one sentence. And that's, like, worth more than everyone else chatting for the whole day. You, the, that sentence that makes you all go, whoa, that. So, you know... Uh, it, it's it's just about exploring that and then coming up with some real really fundamental rules for how you're going to work together. Okay. Now, do you think that teams should strive for diverse, like neurodiversity as well, like different types of people, and then yeah. and then create environments to support that, or is it like okay to have a team of all people that really just want to sit with their headphones on and not interact because there's less dissonance there? Or do you need somebody who is more? wanting to talk to everybody to just create that little bit of friction and noise that helps drive creativity. I'm uh, so I think you need the diversity. I think you need the diversity. And I so so this is away from the neurodiversity, but yeah. I think I think having having the diversity on your team, so having people who think quickly, you know, and and do, and do think on their feet and of uh, have lots of energy and and are quick to express themselves, I think it's really important, as is having somebody, you know, who's who's maybe quieter and more thoughtful and wants to think things through step by step, as is having somebody who's really good at collaborating and bringing people together and as is having somebody who, I don't know, um, is really careful with thinking what all the risks might be or something. And really you need that melting pot of all those different kinds of people if you're really going to solve the biggest, most difficult problems and come up with the best solutions, there's so much research out there that shows that diversity is really good for teams. Um, the, the diverse teams outperform even teams composed entirely of experts in the field. A diverse team will outperform them as long as the problem's hard enough and the people, the diverse people are smart enough, um, they'll outsmart the experts. So, um, you know, and that and that's kind of a known, docu well documented phenomenon. So Scott Page is wrote Scott Page wrote a great book um, called The Difference, exactly about that, with lots and lots of case studies and, and modelling of, of, of different problem solving teams. So we know that that diverse teams are better 
full stop really and I think you know I, I'm particularly focused on on neurodiversity but the same could go for any other kind of diversity right so gender diversity I don't know even we don't think so much about this maybe but even age diversity as well yeah. or See, I, I had thought about most of it before, like, you know, age, race, culture, background, all that stuff. But I had never thought about it before in terms of, you know, what people's needs are when they come into a collaborative space. Like there are, they've got different ways of working and different things that make them thrive. And is it is it better to create a team where you have that that rub of like I like to be this way that person likes to be that way that doesn't really match up um, mm. is I but I guess as long towards what you had done your other work if, if you've created a workspace that cares for and supports that diversity then then they could thrive pretty well and that could make them a lot stronger right and and I and then I hope that what the book's starting to do is help people think about okay, so not just the workspaces, but the practices that we have as well. So are they supporting people? So it's not just are there quiet spaces that people can go to to recharge? Is there a quiet room at a conference, or is there a quiet space in in the workplace? But also, you know, when we have a meeting, how can we, you know, how can we make sure it's as inclusive and as friendly as it possibly could? Can we give the people the opportunity to contribute in writing in advance to somebody if they're maybe not going to be terribly okay verbalizing, you know, their thoughts? Can we give people um, information in different modes, so text and and diagrams? And can we uh, can we post out a list of who's going to be present? Can we make sure, really simple stuff, like can we make sure there's an agenda and a purpose in advance so there's not going to be too, too many surprises for people? Um, and all of these all of these kind of things will help people, you know, have just, just help make sure that we get, make the most of all of the different kinds of minds that we've got in the meeting. And those are going to be the best teams. A certain amount of dissonance, dissonance is great for creativity. Yeah. Cool. So if people want to find this book, they can go to LeanPub if they want to download it in electronic form or yeah. if they go to Lulu if they want it in print form, right? Yep. Yeah. So and on LeanPub, it's totally free or you can pay for it if you want to. Um, and that's Hold on. You should all pay for it. Everyone should pay for yeah. it. Yeah. If you pay for it, that would be great. That would help us with the campaign. More badges, more stickers, more stuff at conferences we can do. Um, if your need is great and you and you are unable to pay for it, then by all means download it for free and we're really happy for you to do that too. Um, then, yeah, you, if you want a physical book, if you're the kind of person that likes to have a physical thing in your hand, then um, you can go to Lulu and um, and order it there and it, and it looks great in, in paperback. So um, I'm really pleased with the way that that, that came out, uh, the, the physical version. And I know that uh, you're going to print some links. Yep, and and they can come to the Twitter site, right? Yes, yeah, so they can. Obviously, I'm on Twitter at Sal Freudenberg. There's um, there's a Twitter account for the campaign of inclusive collaboration, and that's called that's at inclusive collab. And there's links for the the book on that as well. And you've got events coming up. Yes, so I'll be speaking about neurodiversity and um, tech 
at the OOPS conference in Munich in February. Uh, so that's from January the 31st to February the 2nd. Um, I'll also be speaking in, at um, GoTo in Amsterdam. That's on the 13th and 14th of June. Um, I'm also hoping this year to come over to the Agile conference in the States. So cool. hopefully I'll get to actually see you in person. There that would be well. great. Yeah, that'd be great. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right, so I'll include links to the events. And can I ask you one more question? Totally unrelated. What is the most, it's almost the end of the year. What's the most interesting thing that you've learned this year? Oh, wow. I know it's sort of a big question. <laughs> That's a great question. I think. So the, the, the technique that I've learned that's newest to me that I hadn't come across before um, is Wardley Maps. Um, Simon Wardley gave a great talk at, um, at Lean Agile Scotland and I hadn't come across Wardley Maps at all before. Um, so in terms of like an actual tangible technique that people could use, then I would say that that's, that's the one that I learned this year that I, hadn't, that I hadn't seen before at all. Okay. Thank you very much for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. It was great talking to you again. As always, really a pleasure to speak to you too. Take care. Thanks. Hey, this is Dave. One final word before closing out the podcast. Shortly after we recorded it, I got an email from Sally Ann with a new answer to the what is the most valuable thing you've learned this year question. And her answer was, the real answer is that I have learned a visuospatial way of thinking about the theory of relativity that allows me to properly appreciate it as a concept a little bit. It's a super simple thing, but it just clicked with my brain. So that is definitely way beyond anything that I've learned this year. Um, but she's a brilliant lady. So that's it. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Thanks.